Chica Chimbona listeners. I am very excited about being able to unlock a lit review from last season because of the generosity of the patrons. Thank you so much to all of you who really support me in this effort and help me be able to have the time to put in all of the work it takes to make these podcasts. So on this lit review, I was discussing the second half of El País Bajo Mi Piel, which is Giovanna Belli's memoir about her time as a Nicaraguan revolutionary with the Sandinistas. Again, I had Maria Cepeda, my fellow first-gen Yale Latina alumna and Omega Phi Beta sorority sister. And we talked about the series of activists within the Sandinista and other Latin American leftist movements that Billy encountered analyzed the U.S. financial and military support of the Contras and the Somoza dictatorship versus U.S. public-facing comments about the Sandinistas through a convergence theory lens, which is a critical race theory idea that talks about how um, change positive benefits for marginalized people of color only happen when the dominant group, in this case white people, also in some reason for some reason benefit from that action and so or from that outcome and we applauded billy for prioritizing her own creative endeavors while also organizing with the sandinistas so i am actually currently reading gioconda billy's book the inhabited woman for next season's lit review and it's truly fascinating because it's also another 400 page book this woman loves writing 400 page books <laughs> and it it talks about um a high class woman who um, is like a part of is a kind of Nicaraguan socialite who is an architect and falls in love with somebody who's working for quote the movement and it's obvious that though fictionalized it's a it's I don't want to say it's semi-autobiographical but it's I, I think it does provide a very interesting insight in in accompaniment with having read her real life experiences within the Sandinista movement and a lot of the questions that Marie and I brought up about Giovanna Billy during our our two reviews about you know whether or not she adequately does address her class privilege I think are actually really well addressed in this novel that I'm reading. It's written in the first person and so you're able to go into the narrator's mind and kind of you know work out the inner tensions that this person feels and the awareness that they have of the very very different worlds that they straddle yeah so basically y'all should definitely become lit review patrons if you'd like to support the podcast you can be my patron at uh, patreon.com slash and it's for five or ten dollars a month you can support and patrons who pay ten dollars a month get a new episode every week and people who pay five dollars a month get a new episode every two weeks and it's you get first access to new content and it's really just a great time i appreciate all the patrons so so much 
But if you are really want to support the podcast, but you're not able to currently financially, then you can also write an Apple podcast rating and review. It helps other people find the podcast. It helps with visibility. And that's super, super important. And you can also just continue following the conversation and adding to the conversation at on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can share your thoughts with me there. So, um, without further ado, now you all can listen to this Unlocked Lit review. I hope you all enjoy it, and I hope that you all um, decide to become Lit Review patrons after listening to this. All right, bye, y'all. Hello, Radio Cachimbona listeners. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by me, Yvette, a Salvatorian Cachimbona, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. This podcast follows me as I navigate civil rights litigation in Southern Arizona. I'm storytelling the fierce, ongoing migrant resistance occurring in these borderlands. I bring on activists, lawyers, social workers, teachers, folks from all walks of life who in their own ways are resisting. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadorian immigrants, I also prioritize uplifting the voices of Central Americans. This is part two of a lit review of Gioconda Belli's memoir, El País Bajo Mi Piel. Highly recommend that you listen to the first part before listening to this. It'll make more sense. The memoir was a 400-page whopping of a read, so we divided this up into two lit reviews. I had on Maria Cepeda, fellow first-generation Latina Yale alumna. She is also my sorority sister, a fellow founding sister of Omega Phi Beta at Yale. We get into a lot of things. Gioconda Belli's questionable choice in men the various strategies that led to the overturning of the Somoza dictatorship, as well as sustainable and long-term ways and methods that need to be used in order to actually and effectively organize the poor. We hope that you enjoy this lit review. And if you're listening to this right now, that means that you are a patron. Thank you so, so much for your continued support during this time. It has been a struggle to continue putting out content during this app during this pandemic and i continue to appreciate you all so much if you are listening to this and you're not a patron that means that this episode has finally been made public and if you many many months after recording and if you want to get first access to content like this then i recommend becoming a patron the link to the patron is in the instagram bio as well as on radiocachimbona.com you can follow radio cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Radio Cachimbona. If you want to support but don't have the monetary means to do so right now, another amazing way to help is to rate and review on Apple Podcasts because that'll help us get new listeners. Thanks so much and hope you enjoy. I know this woman has lived a lot of life. We have to commend her for that. Yeah, and that's 20 years of her life even? Not even. (laughs) 
I was thinking about that because the majority of the chapters that she writes about are during these critical years when she's organizing with the Sandinistas and they're really trying to overtake the Somoza dictatorship, which was late 70s. Literally, there's so many chapters that are just between the spanned years of 1976 to 1979. And obviously they were an eventful few years and that's why she has so much to write about. But it's just remarkable because she wrote a 400 page book and it's honestly, it's all quite fascinating. Like I, I've never been bored reading her stuff. So it's just a testament to what a remarkable life Giovanna Belli lived that she has this 400 page memoir that she wrote and that so much of it really is compacted in years of her life and so that just says so much about you know what the rest of her life was like and what a dynamic person she was she yeah she's still alive she's 71 yeah and i think she still lives in like Manawa and la the second half of the book I wanted to ask you how you're doing do a check-in and ask what self-care you've done this week or you're planning to do this week mm-hmm. I think overall I'm doing pretty good I think as far as all of this is going like Alejandro and I really have it pretty well like we have jobs that are still paying us and allowing yeah. us to go home and we don't have to deal yeah. with kids and that we like each Even. other <laughs> None of the issues of like food or stuff or huge parties. In some ways, I have been, in a lot of ways, I've been part of that group that's just like, oh, more time at home. What to do? Hobbies. Yeah. You know, it is a very, very privileged group. In terms of self care, one of the things that I realized was is the fact that I'm not moving, not even going to work anymore. I mean, I'm really not moving. And I I forgot what I was doing. and And then I just realized how physically weak I was yeah. and I was like I've and so like that actually then motivated me to get the Peloton app to work out and I think it was it's been good because I feel like sometimes when I try to work out it's more motivated by this thing of weight loss or whatever but this mm-hmm. time like I'm really focusing on like I need to build up my strength I need to be able I want to feel strong enough to be able to do a regular push-up yeah. these are things I used to be able to do and and now, actually, the bigger thing, too, is waking up earlier so that mm-hmm. you wake up at that time of day where there's just that beautiful golden sunlight mm-hmm. on the days that there's actually sunlight. And there's, especially because our window faces the east, where the sunrise is. Mm-hmm. So we get that really nice golden light. And then I feel like I've made some time for me before the day really starts. Yeah, I actually agree. I wake up earlier than Joseph and I really like that fact because sometimes because of because I go to sleep at in between nine and ten. So then I wake up in between five and six and I feel like it's real bruja hours. I just feel very content and at peace with myself. And I do feel like that's my time to myself and it's act it actually is a lovely thing to do on the during the work week because it's really awful to wake up and then have the first thing that you do be work and that's usually what I have to do it's like I have to wake up I get ready I eat and then I go go into the office and that's just what the routine is and it's really nice to wake up earlier than I 
might normally and just have that time to myself and I'll have to worry about eating breakfast right away and getting ready right away it's really nice to have the slow mornings to myself I know I think that might be just something I'll try to incorporate once life resumes to some sort of sense of normalcy yeah I was talking to my friend about how I don't really know what normalcy is going to mean or what returning to normalcy is going to look like because I was like, am I even going to want to go to a music festival again? Like, I think the first time that I'm going to be in a huge crowd of people is going to be a really weird experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean the normalcy, at least in the sense of being able to go to work if you wanted to see people or being able yeah. to hug friends. Oh, my gosh. No, <laughs> yeah. Share a meal with someone other than the person you live with. Yeah, honestly. No, that's really true. Clearly, well, no, there was a lot of things that weren't working, so hoping that we don't return just to how things were. Yeah, I really appreciated seeing people tweet, why are we saying that we want to go back to quote-unquote normal when quote-unquote normal service workers don't have any paid sick leave, they're constantly forced to work, they're an exploited group, farm workers don't have robust labor rights they're an easily exploited community because they're undocumented and now we see how they are literally essential to our survival like we if we don't eat if they don't work and do we really want to go back to a moment where we don't recognize their value and where we continue to exploit them as a country yeah all right so yeah so i would say that was my self-care for this week too is is having the early mornings to myself where I can just slowly eat my breakfast and meditate by myself it's really nice and I think overall I'm doing good like I was telling you earlier that I'm a bit busier at work because as an attorney who focuses on immigration detention conditions really the only thing to be working on right now is getting people released from ICE detention so that they can safely social distance at home with their loved ones and there's been a bit more work as a result of that but it's all work that I'm really proud to be a part of. And even though I have more work, I'm, I'm in the same situation that you are, of like two partners who can work from home, have the same salary, no financial issues, our fridge is fully stocked, and we have a huge house so that we aren't getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> so I, I actually just feel pretty grateful that all the bullshit Stanford Law is, is coming to mean something now. You know, I can actually use it for good. So I, I feel overall good. I'm proud of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, so I wanted to get into the second half of Giovanna Belli's memoir, El País Bajo Mi Piel. Honestly, you shouldn't listen to this episode if you didn't listen to the first lit review that Marie and I did. So I would recommend listening to that and then listening to this. But you can also rebel and not take my recommendations if you really want to. But the second part, second half of her book is parts two and three. And in the second part, she talks about her time in exile. So Eventually, the Somosista government found out that she was a part of the clandestine Sandinista movement, and she was forced to live in exile in various places. She spent time in Europe, she spent time in, in Costa Rica, Panama, and Cuba, actually. And so she's, she, that second part is focused on that, and then part three 
is oh it's in Arezzo, Nicaragua which is when she was able to go back to Nicaragua after the Sandinistas win and they have their their transition to their government so that's just kind of the summary of what we'll be talking about today but first I wanted to talk more specifically about Modesto who she shared fond memories of her compa slash lover and she said that she admired him because of his tenacity. She said that what they both had in common was that this their belief that humans have kind of an intrinsic noble and moral character. And they she said that that kind of undergirding idea motivated both of their organizing. And so I just wanted to ask you if you think such a belief is necessary for leftist organizing. Well, I don't know, because I, the, the, cause the second half of the book also talks about the falling and the undoing of the Sandinista movement. Yeah. And so I wonder how much, and some of that felt like if it was motivated by the fact that people didn't necessarily have this super optimistic view of humankind. Right, or maybe they're maybe I'm thinking that because their approach is more of the and justify the means type of thing, and yeah. so like, mm-hmm. in some ways it tends to feel incompatible with me. But I guess there are some ways that they coexist. But it feels like me to have like an ultimate compassion for humanity, like the way that Modesto and Jocana Belli exemplified, would lead you to think of humanity first, mm-hmm. and how do you respect and honor them primarily and then figure out ways to work around that whereas that wasn't necessarily the approach that some of the Sandinista movement ended up taking yeah so do you want to get into the three different factions of the Sandinista movement and what their different ideologies were so I know that Gioconda eventually ended up switching alliances with the GPP and that the other factions were the Terceristas and El Movimiento Proletario, I think. And one, the the one that I think that was most supported by Fidel Castro in Cuba was the Terceristas that were led by the Ortega brothers. And their strategy was aligned with this idea that like uh, concentrated guerrilla warfare in a particular geographic area, like for example in Cuba, and, both in Cuba and Nicaragua, it's like in the mountains specifically can then inspire popular revolt elsewhere and I just, and that theory made no sense to me <laughs> and I, I, I'm pretty sure it's the Movimiento Proletario, I think, that ultimately had the ideas that I agreed with most because they felt like political public education was something that was necessary as a precursor before you could expect poor people in mass to just take up arms. And I guess history makes that kind of confusing for me because actually they were able, the Sandinistas were able to mobilize a huge section of Nicaragua's people. They funneled arms into various cities and then people did kind of spontaneously without that political education rise up and they did oust Somoza. But I think that the issue afterwards is reconciling the differences that you do have because 
you can make a coalition with groups who have different values than you do when you have a really specific goal, like let's oust Somoza. But it's really hard to maintain those coalitions and that connectivity when the questions that you're faced with are a lot more difficult and where your political differences are going to bubble up. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the, the key distinction because it's on, because you're right, on a certain level, they did all agree that the general population deserved more and that they deserve yeah. better. And the kind of sense everyone is worth living a decent human life. But it, mm-hmm. once you dig once you were digging further and deeper into what that means and how what it took to get there, then that's where you saw the like very different values start coming out. Yeah, and I, I'm actually firmly of the camp that I don't think that the ends justify the means. And I think that if the methods that you use to get to your goal are violent, then I, I don't I don't know. That's just kind of where I start to fall off, and I, and I don't. I, I think it gets very morally tricky. Yeah, because it then gets to the point of well, like, well, to what extent then do you become this oppressive system that you just work so hard to to oust? Right. No, exactly. Because every authoritarian government starts with its own false self justification, and so that's just kind of what that feels like uh, this saying that the ends justify the means. Definitely. And I mean, as we've seen, it was it was actually a, a bit heartbreaking for me to read about the history of the Sandinistas and the values that they had, which are very much aligned with my values, like the importance of literacy, public education, general redistribution of wealth, and then to know that the Sandinista government now, it created, that is authoritarian and almost identical to the dictatorship that they originally ousted. And I've met so many Nicaraguans fleeing the government, the Sandinista government now. And it, it was a bit heartbreaking to see how the, these issues that we're bringing up now, the factions between them and this question of method versus ends, actually ended up really breaking up the Sandinista movement. And now it's been completely co-opted by right-wing authoritarian interests. Yeah. I know. I was thinking that too. No. Like, you, yeah. could, you could have... Like, there was so much potential there. Yeah, there was. They had a great start. <laughs> yeah, it was really heartbreaking. But, you know, I actually found Giacona to be a really inspiring figure. I just found her logic really simple in a comforting way. Like, she said, it, it's going back to that question of, like, are humans intrinsically good? Do we need to believe that in order to be leftist organizers? She said that she did believe in in the goodness of people and that the sole reason that she believed that is because believing that made her happier than not believing that. Mm. And I, I think that that can be reason enough to hold that belief. And I also really, she also said that she couldn't live if she didn't believe that our imaginations could create new realities. And I think that that kind of dedication to imagination is exactly what leftist movements need because 
we do need intense imagination to to think and conceive of a world distinct from what we have now. Yeah, definitely. You can't work towards a better future if you can't imagine it. Yeah, you can't imagine me beyond the scope of what we know is possible. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, you're the only things that you're going to conceive of are going to be reformist things within the system that already exists. But we have to be able to think outside of those systems completely. Like, what would a world without prisons really look like, right? Like, that's the kind of imaginative thinking that we need to engage in if we are going to change yeah. what, what current systems exist. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with a good friend a couple weeks ago of kind of the effects that we're seeing now, COVID-19, and the realization that actually a lot of these like systems that we had put in place and thought were to be like, infallible, they just exist, mm-hmm. they just are. Mm-hmm. Really, we were seeing, oh no, they're there because we believe them to be true, because we tell it it has value, mm-hmm. because this is the kind of rules that we have subscribed to, not necessarily because it's real or valuable in its own right. Yeah, I mean, especially just considering this notion of the eight-hour office workday, I really hope that that is something that we completely do away with because we're all doing the same things that we would normally do, except that we get to do them from home. And it just does away with this idea that you need to be in the office overseen by a manager in order to get the work they need to get done. Yeah. So in part two of the book, she meets Fidel Castro, and she that's when she was discussing traveling to La Habana in 1978-1979, and she described seeing people dressed in Cuban fashion from the 50s and the 60s She when she was visiting in the late 70s, and I just kind of wanted to take that moment to stick back and explain why that would be. And that's a result of the economic, financial, and commercial embargo that the U.S. had against Cuba for many years. It's something that the U.N. General Assembly has criticized and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has criticized as violating international law and just general morals of interconnectedness and global relationships, which is something that I think we're becoming acutely aware of during COVID-19. So I want to ask, how did reading her memoir allow you to better understand Cuba and the economic situation there? Well, I was thinking about it more in terms of, I found it fascinating the way that she appreciated Cuba and what it was and what it stood for. And at the same time, we're like, this is not what we want. So, like, we don't want yeah. a place where people can't have their own individuality and make any individual choices. Recognizing that some of those limitations were caused by the economic embargo, but also like recognizing that well, it's different. Well, they haven't created anything yet. This was before they won their independence, I think. Well, the yeah. first time she went back. Mm-hmm. You're seeing then with a different perspective, flaws in a system. And so like, oh, well, this... Yeah, this is a good start, but not where we ultimately want to end up. And I don't know, it was interesting just how they were kind of still on the same page, but again, still different visions on what that could look like. And I think yeah, I, I really admire her challenging him. <laughs> I just, yeah, completely. And throughout the whole thing of like when men trying to undermine her or be disrespectful as hell because she was a woman and she's like, 
no, I'm not standing for this. I am not just some sexual object. I am here because I have a lot of worth and value and intelligence and I serve a really important role and you better respect that. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I really appreciated that too and how she really stuck to her beliefs and to her understanding of how social change worked and how she even told him that she didn't agree with how he was unequally distributing arms and money to the different Sandinista factions because he was favoring the Tercidistas over others and giving them more arms and more money. And she stood up to him and told him that she didn't agree with what he was doing and that he needed to understand the Nicaraguan specific situation and not just assume that he was the all-knowing person. Yeah. Also then that she like recognized that he was not going to give up until she started seeing his side or something. So she was like, fine, I'll appease, I won't agree with you, but I'll appease you a little bit and tell you something to calm you down, essentially. Yeah. The, him and how he reacted to her, the first thing that he said to her was, where have the Sandinistas been hiding you? And he like looked her over, you know, and at that point though in the book I was like oh my god this is just a one this is just another Mactivist so I don't know if you've heard of this phrase but no I haven't tell me more yeah so it describes men who are prominent quote activists and social justice movements you know they know the language of feminism and they use it just to get girls basically and they convince people that they're woke they're here for the movement they're so dedicated hashtag dedicated but really they still demonstrate the kind of problematic emotionally abusive behavior that cis men demonstrate in a lot of hetero relationships especially oh my god yeah this half of the book made me think about that a lot yeah a lot yeah i know yeah I was like, dang. Especially because, so one of her various lovers was Marcos the fuckboy, who had so many secret relationships that later after he died, she ended up running into a past lover of his at a friend's house years later. And they both, they had no idea. And it just, they were talking in generalities and eventually they both realized like, oh my God, we dated the same person oh my God, he told us the same similar sob story about how he loved them and like they were the girl for him and all this random shit. And and then she said that that conversation made her realize that who knows how many relationships Marco's had over the years. It was just like trash, like men are trash. I felt more bad for her. I felt more bad her for her friend though because her friend apparently was about to get married twice when then like Marcos wrote to her and be oh, like, Don't yeah. get married, wait for me and she being oh, yeah. in love with him that she, she didn't go through with the wedding and, and he still was had no intention of marrying her and I was like, That's real fucked up. One thing is to like yeah, have different girlfriends, whatever. Another thing is to proactively work against someone's happiness to have yeah. them be available for you when you know that's not what you're gonna do at all. Toxic. So toxic. Uh. Yeah. I know. The wedding thing was super surprising. But also, honestly, though, if I was to really analyze that, I'd be like, why is it that 
when you're in relationships with people who are so committed to you that they're literally going to marry you, that you stop that for this non-reliable person. That also, to me, I feel like signals something about her. Because why would you give up secure, loving relationships for this, like, romantic fantasy? Like, that's, that, this feels like excitement chasing. She, I, so I wanted to ask what your opinion was of Fidel specifically, because I thought he sounded insufferable. I'm sorry, I can't believe he's such a revered political figure. He, she said that she described him as pontificating like Moses with the Ten Commandments. I'm sorry, but in 2020, that is not cute to me. Like, <laughs> I'm... I know exactly what she's talking about, and it's not cute. Yeah, I guess had I read his account first, I would have definitely had a harsher account. I think this followed actually her experience with someone else. I don't remember the name. That, like, legit was trying to seduce her and, like, locked her in the house. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. There was... This was someone... This was also... I think... She revealed how pervasive patriarchy was, both within Nicaraguan society in general and within the Sandinista movement, because she talked about how she met with a military general who was engaging in behavior that was tantamount to kidnapping. She was there for professional reason. She was there, I think, either to deliver a message or to pick up arms, one of the two. And he just treated her like a piece of meat that he was trying to have sex with. While with clearly parading all of these other women, all of his other girlfriends. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I guess after reading that, uh, Fidel didn't seem as bad. <laughs> like, I was That's like, fair. oh, he That's didn't fair. try to like seduce her. Or like, oh, he... But I was always nervous when I was when he had her come over to the house late at night. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, is he going to pull this again? And I was like, no, he just works at late hours of the night. And, like, there was always someone else there. So I was like, oh, okay, not as bad. But I was, like, really getting really anxious as I was reading this. I was like, oh, my God, not again. But, yeah. It was still a similar kind of power playing, though. He, I feel like he exemplified for me the importance of not having all of our eggs in one basket corresponding to this super charismatic figure that kind of revels in attention because when that person dies then you you know if that person dies then what everyone dies so when that person dies it really can really deflate a movement and i think that it's not a coincidence that it's these male male revolutionary figures that are so revered in particular. He ha- literally had an entourage around him all the time. And the reason why they met at, hit at the house that he arranged for them to meet at, it's because that was one of the only ways that they were going to be able to speak in private. And But it, it's still, he was flexing his power, though, in the same way that that general was. It's, it was less gross and less overt, but it was still the same, like, I'm summoning you, come to me, kind yeah. of power display. Yeah, there's definitely that power display. And the whole time that he just kept repeatedly hitting on her, it was just like, yeah, no Yeah, it's like, don't do that, right? And yeah, I just feel like it's so hard to be a woman all the time, even in these revolutionary spaces where you would expect men to have better interpersonal politics like they do they just don't no 
they don't. The other thing that I wanted to critique about Fidel was that she talked about him having Spanish features and he is a white, or he was a white passing person. And I think it's important to recognize that so many of these iconic revolutionaries in the white leftist or mainstream imagination are white or white passing because those individuals first have the most privilege in regards to vulnerability to state violence and because of the general whitewashing of history that elevates white people as central movers and shakers of history. There's so many indigenous women activists in particular that have played pivotal roles in the history of Latin America, like Berta Cáceres, Rigoberta Menchú, the subject of the last lit review, which everyone should check out, and Prudencia Ayala, the first woman to run for president in Salvador. Why don't we know these names just as well? We should know those names even better. Right. Instead of the this guy who's a misogynist. Yeah. It is interesting in how, I mean, even in her relationship with Modesto, where she clearly saw these faults, yeah. where she's the somehow like their proximity to power solves them of certain things or the fact that they accomplish certain things makes them unworth less vulnerable to critique in this general sense because yeah, it feels it's okay to not hold them accountable yeah because in the sense like people associate the fact critiquing certain characteristics of them and maybe critiquing what they stand for and it's like no th- right. these are separate the person could be critiqued for these different things and i don't know it's hard well, I think that's why it's, a, it's precisely that reason it's important not to elevate certain figures on a pedestal because actually they're humans and fallible and they need to go through the accountability process just like anybody else, right? Yeah. she talked about her transition from doing communications for the Sandinistas to just focusing on her own writing and her own literature was that she spoke about writing the same way that Gloria Anzaldúa has. She said things like she would have suffocated if she hadn't written and that there was just something emanated from inside her that told her that she had to write. And so I just wanted to ask you if you had ever felt that way. No, I don't think I have. And I was thinking about and how it was interesting that she said like she didn't consider her writing worthy of merit necessarily because unlike other writers that she knew, she never had to really work to write. It just came right. out of her naturally. And it just happened mm-hmm. to be amazing, I guess. Um, that it wasn't <laughs> until later in her years that yeah. really like had encountered the process of working to write. And I feel like I'm more the person where oh you know what i realized i think might be it too as you've seen recently that there's two main types of thinkers people that have internal monologues and people Mm. that don't Mm. and i'm one that one of those that don't and so my idea is when i think it's not i'm not when i think i don't think necessarily in like concrete words and like sentences and internal monologue it's more like these kind of like abstract ideas multiple things running at once and it's not always necessarily formed in words but more of this kind of abstract feeling or sensation or whatever it is so then the act of for me having to take those feelings and to put it in work is a really laborious act 
Mm-hmm. Even sometimes when I'm with Alejandro, my partner, where he will ask me, what are you thinking about? And sometimes I'm just like, it is too much work to explain all of these different <laughs> things that are happening in my head. Yeah. That like are intangible in their own ways. I have to have mm-hmm. to explain them all together. I'm just like, eh, nothing really. <laughs> That makes sense to me because you're very artistic. So it would make sense to me that you're, that's how your thoughts operate. Uh, like a lot of things going on in your head and not like an internal monologue. No, when I realize that people have internal monologues, I'm like, that sounds exhausting. No, I yeah, I have an internal monologue. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but then in that sense, I see writing might be easier because you're essentially... Yeah. Maybe putting it to paper what has already like, occurred in your brain. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. for me, it's an extra act of something. Writing takes me forever. Like, I have to sit down and dedicate a good chunk of time just because I get so distracted. Yeah. And because I'm like, how do I put into words in con- concretely these all of these different things that I want to bring in and know aren't relevant to the conversation? Having to, like, really condense in certain thoughts. Yeah. But then again, I think that's why you're so artistic. All, all the ways in which you helped me during our sortie process, all anything <laughs> remotely creative that I had to do was so lost. talked about was in in her transition from going from doing communications for the Sandinistas was that during that time she took off she really got to reflect on how it was equally valid for her to spend time devoted to her own personal happiness as it was for her to devote time to the revolution and to the Sandinistas and she stated that if she didn't find her own happiness, she wouldn't ever be able to, quote, save the world. That's what she said, which I think is a little presumptuous and we can critique that. But uh, I wanted to ask what your reactions were to that idea generally of the importance of prioritizing happiness as a person who pursues social justice as well. I think it's hard because I know I see it generally in the fields. I feel like, or this act of social justice, generally, the you see a lot of, well, you have to give it all of your 100% and that you always come second. And I think right. I don't do that because I couldn't. Right. I would burn out so quickly if I were to take that approach of like, well, I can't think of myself at all. Right. I only matter in terms of the larger cause. Whereas, right. no, both are true. I can be happy and I can work towards a greater good. They're not mutually exclusive. There is a balance in things. Right. And I mean, and it wasn't like she'd be completely reckless either. Because I think sometimes I see people to the other extent of, oh, life and politics are too stressful. So I'm not going to focus right. on any of that. And I'm just going right. to live my life. Right. And live my all my life completely and solely and not work towards helping bettering others. Even that could look very different ways. It yeah. could could be even something as having your community that you help and like support in other ways, but or also even just she wrote novels that were really well received, and I think that that's also a way to help people. I think that before I went to law school, I had 
a really narrow-minded idea of what it meant to help people and it almost all involved helping people through the legal system and it took me confronting the weaknesses and the inherent inequities that have been built into the legal system that have made me realize the futility of engaging with it and as a result made me realize how important writers and artists and thinkers are because and so her writing a novel now I want to read La Mujer Habitada or her other novels too and I think that if the novels bring people joy I think that that's just as valid as doing political organizing in the traditional sense that she was doing yeah especially because I feel like I guess I haven't read her books, so I would it I don't know for sure, but I imagine that in some ways she's writing about what she imagines might be possible or might right. be writing to like challenge the current social norms to like get people to think about again to dream of what else is possible. Yeah, or even like like with La Mujer Habitada, she talked about how the inspiration for it was her time in the early 70s working as a publicist in Nicaragua. And I think that 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 is its own important story to tell. Being a Nicaraguan woman in the 1970s, being working as a publicist, being taken seriously as a working professional, you know, that is a story that also needs to be told as well. And I think that it's so valid for her to spend time doing that because women do need to tell, women of color, Central American women do need to tell their stories because they are important. I know, and I think about even now, the only reason that we know about everything that she did is because she wrote about it. Right. So, like, we're only like, able to gain an appreciation for what that was, not just for her, but everyone, like, involved in that period, both as a, like, source of, like, learning and reflection, and reflection for us, and also just as the appreciation of her as a writer. Mm-hmm. And the ways that she countered and pushed back against a lot of the, especially the, a lot of the barriers that she would have otherwise faced. And she's just, yeah, no, it's not happening. I'm doing these things and I'm forging my own path. Yeah. You like, recognize, like, As a Taurus, I really appreciated her stubborn qualities. <laughs> also, I, I love it. that you have these really funny ways to identify yourself. You are a Latina. <laughs> of a Taurus. Yes. Yes. Very specific. <laughs> like, wow. Very, very I wish... I actually want to bring in more stuff about astrology onto the podcast because the reason why that was the initial description of the podcast and me as the host is because I really do feel like those things are central to my identity as a Taurus is a central thing to understanding me and I've liked how other podcasts have incorporated that and I feel like the folks that listen to this podcast I guess are interested in law and politics but also are interested in, or could be interested in astrology so I do want to bring more of that into the podcast oh that'll be fun right yeah, something definitely that I've gotten a little bit more into I feel like for a long time I kind of dismissed it because Aries were known as being like bold and fiery and impulsive and all these things that weren't necessarily any positive connotations or you know I mean I'm not necessarily like this like in your face type of person that I feel like yeah. Aries are constantly portrayed as and I was like I don't know it doesn't resonate with it as I've been getting to understand it better and I was like oh there's a lot more to it and I'm being like oh, okay these things make sense or that 
I understand that now. I think the other day I saw finally a positive thing about Aries. It's hardworking, energetic, optimistic. Yeah. Bounce back. And I was like, oh, that's the nicest thing I've read about Aries. That, I feel like I don't read bad things about Aries necessarily. I do agree with you that I definitely identified them as a fire sign and being fiery. But I also don't think that it's super wild that you're a fire sign also. But plus also, do you know your full chart? So I won't ever officially know my full chart. Oh my, oh my God. Because, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, because I don't know the exact time I was born. Damn. What What is the time written on your birth certificate? It's just a random one? Yeah, it's just a random one because they went and got the birth certificate like months later. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't born in a hospital, so that's Wait. what happens in Mexico. Do you, yeah, but you know your birthday for sure. I think so. I asked my mom and she says, yeah, but who knows? <laughs> I'm also a cusp. So I'm, I definitely associate more with Pisces and Aries, but it could just be I have a Pisces raising. I don't know. Well, that's the thing, because the time that you're born determines your rising. So if you don't identify with your rising, it could be that that's the reason why. Because I could see you having an Aries sun and then like a Pisces rising or a Pisces moon. I think from what I saw based on... The time-ish my mom told me. I could be an Aries, a Taurus, or a Pisces rising. I tend to think I'm Pisces, but I'll never know for sure. No, actually, now that I think about it, I could definitely see Taurus rising. Because you do present as very effective and efficient. Yeah, just like a little stubborn, you know? You have your opinions and you hold them. (laughs) But I feel like you could be like a Pisces moon because I feel like at your core, you're very sensitive and caring and loving. about was the voceo, like the usage of voz instead of two, and then the other Nicaraguan slang that sometimes overlapped with Salvadorian slang, which I would read in my mom's voice, like whenever that would happen, she would say, one time she said, claro que si, hombre, and I just thought my mom would say that exactly like that. And so I just wanted to ask if there was anything new that you learned about Nicaraguan culture through reading the book. Yeah, the most, I was very annoyed at. I'm like, who uses this? <laughs> Why do you use this? Ugh. Oh my God, Maria, don't be like that. <laughs> do you use Voss? Yes. Really? Yes. What? <laughs> Maybe, I guess, I don't know what countries use it. I always thought just Spain used it and I was like, y'all are bougie, calm down. <laughs> no, I think it's most Central American countries actually. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so maybe yeah. the Mexicans are just the uncultured ones. I don't know. But um, in Spain, they use vosotros, but vos is different. Vos is like, it's like informal, actually. Oh, see, then in my mind, I was probably confu- confusing vos and vosotros because yeah. I use either of those. Yeah. But vos is like, vos is informal. It, it is like tú, but it's, it's kind of like even more informal than tú. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely not a bougie thing. But. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, that's just how my parents grew up speaking. And so it was really weird for me to realize that that was a regional thing. And actually, like, some people think it's rude 
to use it, you know, or just sometimes there's like very subtle anti-Central American things that are said about it. Like, oh, it's quote rude or it's impolite or whatever. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's like all this baggage around it. Mm-hmm. I just don't use Wilson Wilson in my mind. I just confuse the two. <laughs> no, I understand that. Well, see, now you did learn something new about Nicaragua. I did learn something new. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think that I picked up on much Nicaraguan slang, so it was funny. Yeah, I, I saw it in certain points. I mean, I think, yeah, it's like it really is through my friends who are not Salvadorian and who are not Central American that I come to realize what words are specifically Salvadorian. Two of my friends are Mexican, one's a legal assistant and one is a law student. And they're like, oh yeah, it was through my Central American clients that I learned about bolo and how that means drunk. And I was like, yeah, you don't, that's not a word you use? They're like, no. Like we would say borracho. And like the kids would be like talking about like, oh yeah, mi papá era un bolo. And they'd be like, what? Wait, question for you. So sometimes I hear people talk about refer to the things from El Salvador as Salvadoran. Sometimes mm-hmm. I hear it Salvadorian. Mm-hmm. And I was always very confused about that and like which ones I mean, maybe there's there is no one correct and it's just correct depending on whoever it's more of a personal preference, but I've always been yeah. trying to be mindful of being using the right terminology and realizing like I'll I don't actually know which one is correct because I see both used often. It's pronounced Salvadorian, but it's spelled Salvadoran. That's confusing, isn't it? <laughs> it's confusing. That confused me for a good portion of my life as well. All right, so it's that easy. Got it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> her relationship by the time i started reading about modesto her sandinista lover who was hot and cold and up and down and unreliable an affair that she had while she was married to sergio at that point i was like "Mm, i think chiocona has a problem with toxic relationship what do you think i think it was she i think she i liked how she pointed out that even her dad recognized from her at a young age that she was just a romantic she just fell in like love with people Mm -hmm. Because I'm thinking, like, I don't know if this is necessarily like, going to she always found in toxic relationships. I mean, Sergio, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Sergio like, was, was in love with in the way that she normally would have fallen for him. It almost seemed more like she kind of was just like, okay, fine, you're here. We get along. We're, we're good. I'll stay in this. I just, honestly, but that's precisely why I found her suspicious. Because, again, it's, it's like that other woman who broke up her two engagements chase because marcos was like please don't do it why is it that because when she talks about why it didn't work out with sergio what was the reason that she gave i can't even think of a concrete one no she gave a pretty concrete one it was that he was very condescending to her in terms of her political beliefs actually and that he was always, oh, you don't know enough. You need to learn more. Yeah. And in that sense, like not trusting her sense of freedom and her own intuition about being able to have her beliefs. Like he was great in all of these other ways. Was right. a great partner in all these other ways. Was a great dad to her kids in a lot of ways. Like was supportive. Right. And but it was in these terms of the intellectual freedom. He was only yeah. focused 
in terms of conversations on socialism and these leftist movements and revolution and in this kind of very narrow mindset where it was letting her explore what she thought and what she believed and like listening to her but more telling her why she was wrong and what she, what else she needed to read not exploring from what she was saying like any other topics of life beyond that now I remember that, yeah, that she was bored by that. I think that she was a very dynamic and intellectual person. So it makes total sense to me that she would become bored by a person who would be condescending to her and also would lead such a one-dimensional life only thinking about political strategy. And honestly, that just sounds exhausting. I'm a person who really values that my partner has the same political values as me. And then I also really value that we can do other things that have nothing to do necessarily with politics and have an equally great time. You know what I mean? You need to be able to shut that off <laughs> at a certain point. And also when he, when Sergio re- realized that the relationship was starting to go south, he actually, then his criticisms of her and like of her political beliefs it got even stronger. Right. That was somehow going to tie her back. So I guess, yeah, maybe some toxicity in that. I get what you're saying. I mean, honestly, maybe it's just saying men are toxic and I'm like trying to blame her, but actually just men are toxic. Maybe that's what the conclusion of this is. Oh, that's definitely the conclusion that I got from this. Now, I think, I do think it was interesting though, not necessarily that she was always attracted to toxic people. Because I mean, even with Marcos, I want to say that was toxic. I think he was still... Yes, it was, Maria. Yes, it was. Uh, Okay, maybe I'm just thinking of... He, like, strung her... She was so madly in love with him. And even even though she said, oh, I never thought that, like, I was the only woman in his life, the fact that he deceived her so much that she had no idea how many women he was actually in relationships with while they Mm -hmm. were together, and just the unreliability. I mean, he just sounded like a classic fuckboy. And that's emotionally toxic. Because that play, that messes with your head and your understandings of self-worth, you know? And especially yeah. for him to come around and be like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Like, I know that I told you all of these things, but actually, I really actually love this other woman in Mexico, and she just came back, so I can't see you anymore. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, fuck? actually, towards the end of that, that you're right. I guess I was thinking more of their, the start of their relationship. Yeah. And I mean, how, like, it was yeah. like, not quite a relationship, so it was whatever. I don't know. She definitely, it wasn't, I do like how she did get to the point of address how uh, she really had to re-examine her need for needing a relationship. And Mm -hmm. one thing that was really fascinating too was, A, she always was in a relationship. She just always was falling in love. And even when she was, even when she wasn't in a relationship, how she would talk about how she wanted to feel the power of being a woman and feminine and would use the powers of seduction and like on power and the fact that she was able to seduce all these men right. like just knowing that she could so it's to the extent that she tied her power to her femininity to her power to her ability to seduce men and how for the longest time that's how part of how she defined her power but it's actually once that she broke off her toxic relationship with Modesto I think she spent five years at least three years but I think maybe up to five years of really just not having a significant other, at least not to like partnership and like really focusing internally, both to dig deeper into maybe some of her flaws, but also both to recognize her strengths and elevate Mm -hmm. those. Mm -hmm. And like the kind of, that after how, I don't even know how old she was, when she finally did that and took a break from these men in that type of relationship to both know herself better and to become a better mom to her children. Because I think she said she realized that she was more of a, friend to them which was 
helpful in some ways because I think I did appreciate too that she mentioned she didn't treat her children as dumb. She didn't try mm-hmm. to necessarily completely guard them, yeah. protect them, and keep them the truth that she. She would tell them what she was it, doing. Yeah, she's like they're smart Yeah, she's they're smart enough to know that something is up, and I'd rather tell right. them what's happening than having them jump to their own conclusions. And so, like, at least being able to give them a sense of autonomy in that way, but that she did realize, like, in some ways, she was more of a friend than, like, a mother to them, and, like, taking that time, too, to focus what did it mean to be a mom to them? Yeah. What did it mean to grow into herself? That was actually what I wanted to get into next, but first, I'm going to get wine. Yeah, one of the things that I was heartbroken by was how much time she had to spend away from her children. The time she spent in exile and also the frequent trips that she would have to take. She also talked about various times in her life when she wasn't able to be or she wasn't psychologically present. Like when she was dealing with Modesto, for example, she talked about how that was a time period in her life where... Her kids just remember her absence. She talked about how her daughter wrote an essay in college about how when she was in like the first sentence was describing waking up as a kid and going to the bathroom and seeing her mom's toothbrush gone and just saying, oh, another day where she's gone. And her, and Jukanda was like, I'm not even sure if I said goodbye. Awful. Uh, awful. And I was reminded of how Dolores Huerta also neglected her kids in a similar way. That's what I th- That's what I was thinking about too. Yeah, honestly, the parallels I, I think jump out. <laughs> Be- so, yeah. From though, from my understanding, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think Dolores Huerta more just kind of, for the most part, left her kids to other family members, whereas Chiocana Belli did make more of an effort to like retain to be a caretaker for them for the most part except when she was visiting like traveling yeah I think that that is true I think that the separation that Torres Huerta's kids had from her was a bit more extreme because that is my understanding as well that some of her because she also had a lot of kids and I think they went to different homes and she would see some of them at different times and others. So, and she would spend years without seeing some of them. I think it was very extreme, but I think with Gioconda, it was, it was obviously still something that affected her kids. And so I just thought about the importance of ensuring that social justice movements are truly inclusive of mothers and think about things like childcare, et cetera, when they're organizing. Like, I think that that just totally makes all the difference in terms of whether or not mothers can actually participate in social justice movements. So I'm ask what you thought about that. Yeah, no, I definitely thought about the fact that I had on her children and growing up and kind of the absence. And I remember daughter, the older daughter, telling her once, yeah, I know there's all these poor kids, but at least they have their moms with them. I was like, dang, being called out by your kid like that. And I mean, similar to the, the other 
the kind of sacrifices women are expected to make, both like in the workforce and in organizing and social justice movements, of being like, yeah, sure, you want all of these same responsibilities. Okay, you're you can do them, but with no additional extra support. Right. And I think that in general, she was Jokonabeli was lucky to have family or a partner that was able to help, and that I don't know. I mean, I think about that even with like, working parents, even just generally, it's like how especially a lot of families where they only have lower paying jobs available to them. They do have to choose between working, which they want to do to feel like a sense of providing for the family, just staying home to take care of the kids. And a lot of times they end up doing that because it doesn't make economical sense for them to go work when pretty much most, if not all of their income that they would be getting would be going towards childcare costs. Or if it didn't, it would be with, who knows mm-hmm. what strangers that did they or did they not trust? I don't know, but with a sense of more of a sense of necessity, that is a choice that they were wanting to make. And you know what? Actually, I think that this is a really important point to make because I feel like it tempers my critique of Dolores Huerta. There is a class dynamic that we need to talk about here. Like Dolores Huerta was a farm worker who's organizing people, and Jupanabedi came from class privilege. Yeah. And also, made, while she was doing her work for the Sandinistas, she always had a, a, a privileged job, a job that was well-paying. You know, she, she was in the professional class. She was a publicist. She was a, a novelist. She worked as the communications person. She always had these day jobs that paid her well. And, and as the class privilege that she had with her family also manifested itself specifically in terms of childcare because like you said her daughters would go to their loving grandparents while she would be away on her trips and that's a fundamentally different experience than being taken to extended family members that you aren't really that close to it definitely is and a context privilege and what is what resources are available to you and also and also the challenge of knowing that you know that you're willing to do the work but you don't know who else is and so it's it's one of those things of uh i think what draws people to do the work but also backfire if i don't do it who else will and maybe knowing that or also just knowing if you really enjoy this work having to feel like you have to choose between one or the other if you have to choose between or the other, there is not going to be a right choice. Either way, right. there is a drawback to it. You know, I feel like we're entering into that territory of that kind of bit stereotypical conversation about can women have it all? But I think that with I think with her specifically, it really was a trade-off because you can't bring your children on the clandestine mission to bring the seven suitcases of rifles across the Costa Rican border to Nicaragua. There was probably things- suspect or less. <laughs> Mia, no, I would never. <laughs> no, I was joking. Never do that. <laughs> to clarify, she wouldn't bring her own children in the car. <laughs> no, I wouldn't expect anyone to do that. I was just messing. <laughs> I think that what I'm bringing up is something that can be done effectively in certain organizing 
and it can't in others. You know what I mean? Like if you're organizing a union, you know, you can bring your kid to meetings, but if you're trying to overthrow a dictatorship, you can't bring your kids along. I mean, sometimes it's not even about if, not even if you're the one organizing it, but you're one of the people trying to participate and learn more and just help move this along and be one of the people participating. If you don't know that there's going to, that the place that you're entering is kid friendly, or if you don't know that the place that you'll be at will have like maybe snacks to provide for your kids or like something Mm -hmm. to entertain them. So they're not just going like, well, then you're not going to want to participate. If you don't have resources in your own network to be able to help such as like family members or being able to pay for a babysitter or whatever it is. Yeah, I definitely realize why it makes sense that Giacona really ended up playing the role that she did because she was was very well suited to play it. She had the class privilege. She had extended family support. That was the role that she was equipped to play. And I think that that's important for all of us to think about, you know, we, um, you and I bring different privileges and a lot of the same privileges <laughs> to this conversation. And it's always important to think about that when we think about what roles we want to play in social justice movements and how much we can risk. And then the point about motherhood for, that I wanted to talk about about Bona, is the sense of, or I'd like to get your thoughts too on kind of after she already had two daughters and was with Sid here for a while. That she was like, okay, I feel like I need motherhood again. I'm like right, yeah. ready again could, for this sense really... of to be to want to feel that sense of wholeness or know that like mm-hmm. my female power is being fully utilized and put to use. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it could be because I'm on birth control and that suppresses hormones that would want me to have children, but I just really could not relate to that sentiment at all. I mean, especially during COVID-19, I'm I'm scared for myself right now. I just can't imagine bringing a child into the world right now. And it's kind of interesting because it's COVID-19 and the Nicaraguan dictatorship are completely different circumstances. But, but it, it presents the same question of, do you want to bring children into this fucked up world that you are dedicating your life to changing because it's so fucked up? Do you still want to bring kids into that world? I think it's a very interesting question. Yeah. I don't know. It was just interesting to think of how much she constantly, even, even in the second half where she was more explicit about the challenges that she faced as a woman being being in this revolutionary work, especially yeah. with all these misogynistic men, mm-hmm. that she still first and foremost saw her femininity as a sense of power. And that probably speaks more to the sense of privilege that she has too. Mm-hmm. If you are a white passing wealthy high mm-hmm. woman from a certain class, the challenges that you face of being a woman are is different. Than if you are a working class woman with a lot less resources available. Yeah, honestly, I I suspect that interactions with that general went a lot differently if you were poor and indigenous. You know what I mean? It really is essential to understand, especially how white women are what the white supremacist capitalist framework wants to protect the most and it's literally white femininity that's weaponized that has been weaponized historically to lynch black men and to over incarcerate black and and brown men 
And it's really important to recognize the ways in which she had that privilege and how that did aid her in navigating these spaces that were, as we've said, dangerous at times. And at the same time, I don't think necessarily necessarily being poor and or indigenous or and any of these other identities that tend to be marginalized would necessarily preclude you from like feeling power and like your womanhood for sure oh yeah to feel different or to the experiences tend to be different but it is still that kind of i don't know that sense of it it just is really interesting because I don't know about you, but growing up watching, especially Casos de la Vida Real. Oh like, my God. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. I was like, oh my God, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for the trauma. I'm ready for the conversation. Let's go. Yeah. I think we've talked about, had several conversations about this, but how, especially shows like those, really only highlighted the vulnerabilities of being a woman and how you should be scared to be a woman because it makes you more susceptible to all these things. So, it is always nice to see the other side of being. No, there is a power in this that men will never have. Right. That is something right. they they can't take away. Yeah, that was. I honestly was so scared of because I was a girl. That was the message that I got from those shows. I, I just I was so scared all the time of sexual assault. Because it, it the the way that they portrayed it is like this inevitable thing that women can't fight back against, and it's a really traumatic show that my mom was like obsessed with watching for whatever strange reason. So I really did appreciate reading Giacondo's reflections about how she felt power in her femininity and in her ability to give birth and. Again, this is why people should also listen to the latest lit review because I, that is an example of an indigenous woman speaking on the uh, childbirth and the really beautiful practices of integrating a new baby into the community. So just listen to that for give it a listen. Yeah, for a more continued conversation about that. One of the most clever things that the Sandinistas did was Radio Sandina that operated from Costa Rica. So this was the years where they were arming the cities to take over the dictatorship. And they would play catchy songs on the radio that were actually instructions for how to arm and disarm the weapons that the poor would be armed with by the Sandinistas. And I just found that to be so brilliant and really inspiring, just thinking about all the different ways in which we can use cleverness to beat oppressive forces. And wanted to ask what something was that you admired about the type of strategizing that the Sandinistas engaged in. Yeah, that was really fascinating. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, dang. I was like, wait, how did that completely fly under the radar? I don't know if it was just like not the type of programming right. that all the people that would have the Guardia Nacional would have been like listening to. Or, wait, that's um, super powerful because there's only a specific subset of Radio Cachimbona listeners, you know? It's like ICE. 
nobody from ISIS is in this podcast. <laughs> like, you know, we could also come up with some some instructions and some catchy tunes on this podcast. But anyway, I, I, I digress. No, that is funny. I guess you could. <laughs> but no, that, that's too. Yeah, no, I would be super surprised. Well, actually, not very surprised because <laughs> ISIS is wild. They could, for all you know, they if you got high, if you got tagged in their system as Honestly, a I dangerous person. I, I think I am. <laughs> Not just because of this podcast, but because of my work, I'm literally always either suing them or the person they need to contact on the demand letter. <laughs> so, and then also I have this podcast and then also like I help plan actions where there's hundreds of cars <laughs> detention center. I'm definitely on a list. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So, uh, so, cause I, I know you're probably talking more about what they did before, before. And I now, mean, really? Yeah. I'm obviously before like they, they went to the right. I mean, I think it was really smart of them until they had a global reach. Oh, they knew yeah. that these efforts weren't local. I mean, they were to a certain extent, but it was part of a larger effort. And that they had alliances worldwide that, like, were working towards similar causes and that could sympathize with them. And actually, they were able to use that global network to fundraise. Because think about it. Like, buying all those arms costs money. And they yeah. get that money somewhere and yeah it was through making all of these alliances with with movements from across the world that had similar aims and also from like maybe like artists or yeah mostly like artists or other like people who's like aligned with their values both to serve as a fundraising front and also to help promote their message i think uh, shortly after they did, they came into power i think they were there was a whole bunch of uh, famous people and celebrities or artists and stuff that went to Nicaragua and like, got to know what was happening there. And it was part of their efforts of going back to, especially the U.S., write op-ed letters and write and promote position in favor of the Nicaraguan independence and the Sandinistas that really, for, for a while at least, kept U.S. interventionism at bay because yeah. they knew it wouldn't be popular otherwise. Yeah, I really agree. I, I really appreciated the solidarity that they had with Palestine. That was something that was mentioned a lot. And when Juanda was in exile, she was in Costa Rica, and that is where they had they had or they had organized Sandinistas in Costa Rica doing the Radio Sandina. They had Juanda doing press and like meeting with with Costa Rican government officials, trying to get them on board. And they had that type of activity in Mexico as well. And she talked about being in Mexico and like interacting with those folks. It was a very comprehensive, organized effort. I actually don't know that they were in favor of Palestine because I feel like it was maybe after they got their independence, they said that they were going to, what country was it? Near Libya, I think. Where they their agreements almost ended because the Sandinistas didn't want to sign something that said that denied Israel its right to existence, and I was actually really struck by that. Really, wait, that's so interesting because earlier in the book she definitely talked about the Sandinistas having alliances and being in solidarity with people in Palestine. What did she comment on? 
I don't remember that. Did she comment on that decision? I don't think so. But it, that's definitely what I understood. I feel like I had to go back and read it a couple times and be like, was that right? Because there was this moment too. It was, I think it was in the chapter where they were also talking about how they went to the Soviet Union and the women that were asking, oh, how would... Oh, now that you've achieved freedom, how are you going to make sure that they respect and acknowledge women's rights? And they're like, oh, well, we've been working at it and whatever. Even though at this point they had already said women couldn't be part of the National Army because too cost prohibitive to have separate separate stations or whatever. I don't know. So like, oh, we're working towards it. And the, the women from the Soviet Union is, yeah, okay, we'll see. Palestine's role in the revolution, the Palestinian resistance played a crucial role in the Sandinista revolution. The Palestine Liberation Organization sent arms and provided training for Nicaragua's guerrilla forces before the fall of Somoza. Meanwhile, Israel was key ally supplying the dictatorship, even as the U.S. began to distance themselves. Then, when the FSLN took power, the PLO was among the first to open an office there, with Arafat visiting Nicaragua to declare the way to Jerusalem leads through Manawa. Then, when the FSLN took power, the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, was among the first to open an office there, with Arafat visiting Nicaragua to declare the way to Jerusalem leads through Manawa. Mm. Okay, it says here for Libya, las negociaciones complicadas y confusas estuvieron a punto de fracasar cuando nos negamos a el acuerdo conjunto incluyera un párrafo que negaba a Israel su derecho a existir y afirmaba que todo ese territorio pertenecía a Palestina. No podíamos firmar yeah, algo así, sense. dijimos. Oh. No, no, but they said that cuando nos negamos a que el acuerdo conjunto incluyera un párrafo que negaba a Israel su derecho a existir, y que afirmaba que todo ese territorio pertenecía a Palestina. I understood that as they were the ones that said that they couldn't sign off on a paragraph that said Israel shouldn't exist and all of that territory belongs to Palestine. Yeah, that is what I understood too. Can you tell me what page you're reading? 371, um, that last paragraph in like the middle of the paragraph. Because for me, if they're saying... They are saying Israel shouldn't exist and that territory belongs to Palestine. And they didn't sign off on that. Or they didn't want to sign off on that. It seemed like Libya wanted to, but they didn't. I mean, I guess she supported a two-state solution. That's how I read that. Mm. But that is very, that's very interesting because if they got support from the PLO, that's not the it's that's not the PLO's position that the a two state solution is not PLO's position and they maintain that Palestine is Palestine and that anyone who's calling it Israel is occupying Palestinian land. Yeah, that's why I, I stopped at that paragraph and reread it a couple of times because I was yeah. like, Oh Wait, like that's wait. interesting. Right. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the way I thought they would align themselves. Well, because I know, and earlier they didn't. Like, earlier I remember explicitly reading that they educated themselves about the Palestinian situation and saw themselves as allied with them. And when she was in Cuba, she talked about how there was Palestinian folks there. Who knows? I don't know what happened. I don't know what changed. 
I mean, that's the thing, right, about movements is this is why they disintegrate sometimes when people have fundamentally different views like this that can't be reconciled. And I think that there were always longstanding divisions within the Sandinista movement. And then it's obvious that also people had different opinions about Palestine and Israel. Yeah. interesting about her story was when she went to Europe to fundraise for the arms like you were talking about she was held up in the airport in Spain because Adolfo Suarez was president at the time and hadn't fully read the government of Franquistas, the Spanish fascists. He won the 1977 election and was transitioning the government to democracy. She was still detained and sent back to Costa Rica where she would have to where she had to have a friend renew her passport so that she could go back to Spain she didn't have a renewed passport, but she said she had an identification card that said that she, I think it was a, I forget what she called it, but I think it basically explained that she was an exile from Nicaragua at the time. And I thought it was really interesting. She was let back into Spain eventually. And that was where she went to fundraise for arms to send back to Nicaragua. And she also traveled to various fabulous places. But then she stated that she ultimately longed to be in Nicaragua fighting, actually alongside Modesto, who was there at the time fighting. And wanted to ask you what you thought of that, especially since, as we discussed in the last episode, she had stated earlier that she hated the thought of a gun in her hands and really had difficulty grappling with taking up arms. And at the end of her memoir, she's actually quite anxious to get onto Mm -hmm. the battlefield and join Modesto. So I think actually what happened is I don't think she got an identification card saying that she was eligible. I think what they did is they forged her documents Mm. to make it look like they renewed her passport. Because she was saying, look, here I was trying to do things the right legal way and it didn't work out because she said that they renewed her the Sandinista way, which uh, was probably forging documents. Okay, now I better <laughs> understand that. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that is so funny. Isn't that funny? I was like, dang. I feel that sometimes when you're like, man, I'm trying to do the right thing. <laughs> they did it the Sandinista way. <laughs> she eventually got her passport renewed. Okay, now I understand that. I was like, Because I thought that that was a reflection of the Spanish government at the time that was pro-Samosa, but it actually was not. It was just that. No, so at first she had the proper passport and she thought that now she would be able to travel with was it a Costa Rican passport? I don't know what it was, but she was she thought she was she would be able to travel without the Nicaraguan pa- visa renewed, or she thought she didn't need a visa anymore because that's what it was. She thought she didn't need the visa anymore because she is from Nicaragua, and I guess the restrictions had been lessened or something. But because she had that certain designation on her passport that she was an exile, then she did need this. Oh, visa. oh, um, okay. And so then the. Sandinista just renewed it for her. Oh, the Sandinista way. And that's how she went back. Yeah. And it was funny because the Spanish government intervened to try and, I guess, enforce the law. And then she just ended up breaking it so that she could get back in. Yeah. 
kudos to her. <laughs> that scene was hilarious. That was interesting because I didn't I didn't read or maybe I, like I missed that part. I didn't think about it so much of she wanted to be back actually fighting, literally fighting. I thought it was more like her wanting to be back in her country and wanting to be next to Maldesto. More so actually wanting to be in the battlefield. But I could have not read closely enough. I guess I just I even find that sentiment a little bit misguided because I don't know. It was, I don't know, it felt kind of like she wanted to be a martyr. She wanted to put her own body on the line for the sake of putting her own body on the line. That's just what I felt from that. Mm. I thought it was more if she didn't want to leave her man. Because mm-hmm. he was being messed up of being like, okay, you should choose between me or him. But if you choose me, we can't really be married or live together. But you have to be mine. This is a shitty offering for sure. And she took it. I was so mad at her because she knew better too. Did she? That's what I'm saying. That she attracted. She like was in toxic relationships. Uh, Which of her relationships do, could you really be like? Wow, that was a good one. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the death of Bill Stewart, the journalist, was pivotal in the U.S. officially backing down from supporting Somoza. And I wanted to use that example as a time to talk about convergence theory on the podcast, which I haven't before. It's a critical race theory proposition that monumental positive change for people of color only occurs when it's also in the interest of white people. So critical race theory and convergence theory offers an alternative understanding to the Brown versus Board decision which you could explain as the justices realizing that segregation and Jim Crow is wrong, but could also be explained by the Cold War and the U.S. criticizing the Soviet Union for its human rights abuses while it was also engaging in human rights violations of Black folks. And so it couldn't really credibly say to the global community we're fighting human rights violations when they're committing their own and so the the integration of public schools was a positive thing in that context and so that's under the critical race theory convergence theory framework an example of monumental change for people of color happening because it also converge with the interest of white people. Yeah, I thought about that because it's like, it's not like the U.S. didn't know that this was happening. They were actually the US was like, intimately involved in supporting the Samosa regime and should have been exactly. aware of what the military was doing and their tactics. Exactly. But it's, oh, it didn't mean anything that who knows how many lives, Nicaraguan right. lives were lost. Right. But it's like one well-known American life was lost and that was enough to be like, this is not okay. And it just tells you something too about the way that lives are valued. Yeah, it was super heartbreaking to read that. Like, fuck, yeah, so many Nicaraguans did die and the U.S. didn't care. And it was just when the public could judge the U.S. that the government felt like it it should stop supporting Somosa publicly. Yeah, that was really upsetting. It was.
there was something that was so electric and exciting about her describing the Sandinista win and her compas in Costa Rica needing to make newspapers that would go out to the public to tell them that Somoza had been overturned because Somoza himself had bombed the main nationwide newspaper. So literally there was no newspapers that were putting out news. And the sentiment was just so exciting and there was a sense of potential and yeah, a sense of potential. And so I wanted to ask you how you reacted to the chapter where the Sandinistas won. I I was excited for them, you know, because of, and also that moment of when they found like that they were all quiet because it was just, they had to take the moment of process of like, is yeah. this real? Right. This is not like, you know, when right. something that you've been working so hard towards that like right. when it finally happens, you're like, oh, did we, did we actually finally get here? Like, yeah. is this what it was? Yeah. I think because they also talk about how they weren't expecting that. They were expecting to have to do some sort of coexistence with the current regime for a bit and to, like, have to work towards, like, some transitioning, not necessarily this, like, total abandonment. Right. The change um, happened in two days. Yeah. And how, like, they all, like, were so, were so scared to celebrate for, like, what if it wasn't true? And to right. like have that dream shattered, and but I don't know. I felt that emotional rooting for them too. Of like, oh shit, mm-hmm. like you did. And I think part of it was too before they had to get on into all the complicated, messy things. Just that moment of possibility, that moment of exactly. like knowing of what exactly. of knowing that you could shape what could be, and that it didn't have to be what was Mm -hmm. I think it's Mm -hmm. something about like just having that possibility that was so exciting and obviously we know it didn't quite turn out that way but just knowing that at least for like a moment they had that succeeded in reaching what they were trying to work towards and I will say that I that the revolutionary spirit lives on in Nicaraguan people so I spoke with so many political folks who were organizing against their current corrupt dictatorship still, you know, the story continues. And it was inspiring to read about that moment of excitement and possibility, as you say, because I think that's what we constantly need to be fighting for, is creating wins that create that space, that moment of feeling possibility. I think that's the only thing that's going to fuel us moving forward. Yeah, I do think about, though, the trade-offs of how these movements can't be won without mass movement. And the mm-hmm. mass movements tend to be from those most vulnerable and yep. most exploited. Yep. And at the same time, even if there is victory, they're still the ones that are losing out most in this period of transition and figuring things mm-hmm. out and, yeah. me- and those costs. And I know, like, for... It seemed that, like, a lot of them were willing... You know, to take on that risk because they knew that, like, even if it didn't, those victories didn't happen in that moment and in what would have been their lifetime. Like you said, that spirit continues to live on. Yeah, I think that that's a really great place to end. And I wanted to say thank you for coming on to the podcast again and wanted to invite you to share any final reflections on the memoir. I don't know, I guess it just left me wanting to read more of her stuff and 
Uh, a little bit prouder in my ability. I didn't think I would read a 400-page autobiography <laughs> and it's in Spanish, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel that way, and I feel like my vocabulary has improved as a result of reading it. So I, I would definitely recommend it to folks, especially during social distancing time. Y'all got time. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Maria, so much Thanks. for coming on to the podcast. Thanks and bye, everyone.